First off, my name's Chad. I'm not Tom. I'm one of the elders here at North Glencoe Baptist Church, and uh, I'm blessed today to be able to fill the pulpit. And it dawned on me this morning that I can set the record straight on something. As I was putting on this microphone that Tom gives me such grief for using because of my big bulbous head, is what he says, uh, it dawned on me that when I put this microphone on, I have to shrink it down every time. Uh, it's not that I widen it out, I have to shrink it down. So uh, I just want that on the record, that, uh, <laughs> that I shrink the, the, the microphone down, I don't make it any bigger. Uh, so we are in our study in Luke. We're, we're back in Luke. Last week we finished up Luke chapter 10 where we had the story of Mary and Martha. And if you remember, um, Mary and Martha have Jesus and everybody over to the house and Jesus is sitting around talking and... Um, Mary is running, Martha's running around and doing everything. She's frying chicken. She's getting sweet tea poured, all that good stuff. Everybody's getting taken care of. And Mary, meanwhile, is, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she complains to Jesus and she says, Would you just please talk to my sister and get her to help me out? She's just sitting there, God, Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus looks at her and he says, Well, Martha, Martha, you are, you are worried about a whole lot of things. I want you to notice that Mary has chosen what is better and it's not going to be taken from her. And so what Luke is doing is he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. He's he's setting out this orderly account, and what he's done is he's set up what it's like to sit at the feet of Jesus, what it's like to be in communion with him as a disciple to a teacher. And so it just makes sense that what comes next would be prayer. There's nothing in the text that shows that this is in the correct time order because we're in one minute in Mary and Martha's house and the next minute Jesus is somewhere praying. So there, we don't know what went on between this or, or anything like that, but we open up in chapter 11 with this account of Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And before we get into that, and, and I try and parse that out for you this morning and unpack that, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Dear God, our Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your knowledge. We give you thanks that you are sovereign. God, that there is none like you. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for the promise you gave us at the end of this section in Luke where you said, how much will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God, I cannot teach anything this morning. I don't pray like I should. I don't pray as often as I should. And the fact that I'm standing before your people talking to them about how to talk to you makes me shake. So God, would you send your Holy Spirit because he is our teacher. He is our comforter. And we put our trust in you. God, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand, and the Spirit willing to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So we open up, and the first thing we see is that Jesus is somewhere praying. And after he's finished praying, one of his disciples comes to him and says, Lord, would you teach us to pray the way John's disciples are taught to pray? They could tell something was different. You see, prayer at this time, prayer's nothing new, is it? I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, there was prayer. It just looked a whole lot different. In the Garden of Eden, Adam just said, hey, God, and God said yes. So the prayer may have changed in form just a little bit over time, but prayer is definitely nothing new. 
But we can see from the words of Jesus in other places what prayer had become. Back in Matthew, Jesus gave some instruction on prayer as well, and he said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now, that gives us a snapshot of what prayer is like, but it also tells us that if they received their reward, then following Jesus in prayer also has something in store. For us, Jesus continues after he talks a little bit more and gives him some guidance on how to pray. He says, and I say to you, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So by seeing this, by seeing a disciple coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? We can tell that prayer is something that has to be taught. It's not something that we are born knowing how to do. As someone, as I've been around people who come to Christ after me, I've noticed that that oftentimes that's one of the things that they, they just don't understand, right? We all had to be taught how to pray. It's our job. As parents, it's our job to teach our children how to pray. Well, Chad, I don't have any children, or my children are grown. Well, then, just two weeks ago, We heard the Great Commission preached, right? And what did Jesus say to do? Go, therefore, and make what? Converts? No, because a convert would be that I convince you to do something and you start doing that thing and then I leave you alone. No, he says to go and make disciples. So just like Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we're called to have disciples that we lead to Jesus, that we teach this walk to. And part of what we're supposed to do is teach them to pray. Now, it's early in the message, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but can I just tell you that it is not the job of the person who stands behind this pulpit in this setting to teach you to pray? It's not Miss Donna's job to teach the children back there in the back to pray, although she might. It's not Garrett's job to teach the high schoolers to pray. It's our job to model that to our kids. It's our job to model that to the people that we disciple. So prayer is taught. Well, as I'm going through and we look at this prayer, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I want you to get my my assumption about what prayer is. Okay? This is Chad's definition of prayer. Prayer is our will being aligned to the will of God and never the other way around. Just recently, I had to clean out my classroom and I had a ton of stuff. I spent 15 years in one little bitty room. I had gathered some stuff. So as I moved everything out of my classroom and moved it home, I needed some place to put that stuff. And so I had the bright idea that I would build some bookcases. Sounded easy. I could knock that out in a weekend. A month and a half later, right before my wife told me that it was either her or the bookshelves, I realized just how difficult it was to do that. Because when you make that cut in the wood, that cut is made. You can't uncut it. It's all right to cut too little, but you can't do anything about cutting too much. And you have to cut in the right direction. And to do that, you have to align up that saw, right? So prayer is God's way of getting our will in line with His. Never 
the other way around. And when his disciples look at him and ask him to teach them to pray, Jesus uses this tool. As a teacher, that's my job, that's what I do. Even though I'm not in the classroom anymore, we still, as teachers, use different tools to teach people things. Right now, I'm working with a little girl who is from Vietnam. She's been in the country since April, and she's in kindergarten. And she is learning her colors in English. And the way that I learned to teach colors to a kindergartner is to pull out this book called Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? It's like the free bird of kindergarten. It is, I mean, when you read Brown Bear to a first grader, they are so excited. You pull it out, and they're like, Brown Bear! They are so pumped. Well, it's a tool that you use to teach. And we can tell that what Jesus tells his disciples is a tool that he used to teach. We can tell because this same prayer is recorded in Matthew. And it's at a different time. The first time that he gives this prayer, it's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more recorded. And it's in in, uh, Judea. No, Galilee. I was right the first time. And by this time, that ministry has ended and he's in Judea and he's using the same thing. Very well could have been some of the same people. So that tells me that prayer needs to be taught and it's not a one and done thing. That it's something we have to remind ourselves over and over again all the time from God's Word. And so this is what Jesus did. And what I'm going to do is take us through the the shortened version of the Lord's Prayer that we find in Luke. And I want to talk about each of the phrases that he went through, okay? So the first thing that he does is he looks at his disciples and he says, when you pray, say, Father. Now, I know there's a whole sentence with that, but the fact that Jesus chose to invite his disciples to call God Father is revolutionary. It's what ticked most of the Pharisees off at Jesus, do you know there, he's, he's called Father quite a few times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do you know in John, Jesus calls God Father well over a hundred times? And it's, it's not just Father like we talk about George Washington being the father of our country. Because they talked about God like that in the Old Testament. They called him Father like that, that he was the father of the nation of Israel. But in this case, Jesus uses the very personal word, Abba. Abba is what I guarantee you right now, if Tom and Jeff and Miss Susie and the rest of them are around little kids, and those little kids are around their parents over in Bethlehem, they will lift up their hands if they need their daddy, and they will call out to him the exact same way. They will say, Abba. When Charlie came home, you found out how to say daddy in Chinese. Do you know how you say daddy in Chinese? Baba. Do you know how you say daddy when our little kids in English are going to say dad? Daddy, they're going to say, da-da. It's the same all the way around. And Jesus is standing here inviting his disciples to call God Father. Call him Daddy. Now, first off, there's some cosmic implications here because the reason Jesus calls him Father is because that's his relationship to him. In the triune nature of God, Jesus is God the Son, and there is God the Father. And he invites us into that kind of relationship with God, that we might stand outside of that triune relationship and look and call him Father. Call him Daddy. Now, there's a, couple of, there's a pitfall here that I want you to be careful of. 
We're really, really prone to seeing a relationship like this because it's sweet, isn't it? All my dad's in here. The first time that little kid looks up at you and calls you daddy. All my grandparents, my moms, all of you who are around that child and that first thing they call you, you don't care what it is. My kids call my mother-in-law BB because that's what came out of their mouth first. Jen's grandmother's called Juice. It's just what came out of their mouth first. And it's sweet, it's cute, but please don't miss out on, the, on the, the point that when we call him Father, we call him our source. We come to him in an act of submission. And we are so not comfortable with that. But calling him Father recognizes him as our source. Romans 6, Paul talks about how we are either going to submit to sin or we're going to submit to righteousness. He calls it the relationship there like slavery. So in this, we're coming to God and we're recognizing Him as source. Growing up, my dad, he meant that on Friday nights, his family was going to be home. He and mom had had this rule that you were at home on Friday night and we all ate dinner together. We didn't watch TV, maybe the news, but then we didn't watch TV. It was just family time. It didn't matter what was going on. Football game, he didn't care. Anything else going on, we were at home. Was he right in doing that? Really, honestly, that's not the point. The point at the time was, is he was father, I was son, and I lived in submission to him. Whether he was right or wrong, that's also in the relationship when we call God Father. So don't miss out on the fact that there's, he's the source and that we're to be in submission. And the next thing he says, along with Father, is he says, Hallowed be thy name. That, that word, hallowed, if you look at it in the, in the original language, the root for that word is where we get the word holy. We're asking God, the first thing that we ask God in prayer, the first thing Jesus recommends that we, that we talk about is God being holy. Well, God is holy, right? There's nothing we can do to change that, right? It's not like we're on our knees and we're thinking, God, please be holy today because he's holy yesterday, today, he's holy forever, isn't he? So let's look at the implications of what that means in our life. When I taught school, the first day of school, one of the things that I would tell my, my students that were in my homeroom, I would tell them, on your forehead, you have a name. There are a few of you in here that I taught, and I've just sent you on a bad flashback. I apologize, so just think through this with me. On your forehead, you have a name, and I would tell them, if you are out in the hallway and you are acting like a goon, the first thing that teacher that doesn't know you is going to do after they stop you from misbehaving is they're going to ask you, who's your teacher? And whose name are you going to have to say? Your name, Mr. Strawn. I was intense in fourth grade. I realized that. But they would say that, and that's because they carried my name. They were Mr. Strawn's class, and I told them that. Well, how much more do we carry the name of God? What does the world call us but Christians? Little Christs, right? What more do we carry besides His name than the fact that we are made in His image? 
How different would our lives be? How different would our nation be? How different would our leaders be? How different would everything be if we lived life in the fact that we are the standard bearers of the holy name of God? That if I mistreat someone, I'm misrepresenting God to them. That as a father, if I mistreat my children, I am letting God's name be drug through the mud. So when Jesus is saying, when you talk to your father, say, Father, hallowed be your name. He's saying, God, let me live in light of the fact that you love me. You love me enough that you would ask me to call you father. God, let me live in the light of that. God, let our lives be lived in such a way that we recognize the holiness of your name. The next thing that he says, after hallowed be your name, is your kingdom come. We've recognized him as source. We've recognized him as sacred. And now we're recognizing him as sovereign. When I think about the sovereignty of God, one of, the, one of my favorite scriptures pops out. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, Isaiah writes this. This is God talking. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, from ancient times, things not yet come. Church, God is sovereign. And what that means is God not only determines the ends of the situation, He ordains the means by which it's going to happen. God is sovereign at the first quarter. He is sovereign at halftime, and he is sovereign in the fourth quarter. God was sovereign in 2016 on Super Tuesday, but he was just as sovereign in 2008. What is prayer? What's the the position I'm coming from today? Prayer is our will being aligned with God's. Never. Never. Never the other way around. Your kingdom come recognizes God as sovereign. Even though things are messed up in this world. When Jesus saw how messed up things were in John 16. In John 16, it's coming towards the end. Jesus can see the the shadow of Jerusalem coming up ahead of him. And his disciples have told him, Jesus, we will follow you. We will do whatever you say. And Jesus looks at them in John 16, about verse 30, and he says, Do you now believe? (laughs) Well, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In the short term, we have the exact same relationship with God. We are not left alone. That word father that we covered is the foundation of prayer. It means we're not alone. In the long term, 
when we say your kingdom come. We're recognizing the fact that this world is not our home. And the kingdom is not in its fullness right now in any country. But we can look ahead. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, it says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, we don't have time to go on to what the 24 elders fall on their face and say, but take a look at that prayer in Revelation 11 and compare it to the prayer that we're talking about right now. That prayer is on the other side of the seventh trumpet. And it recognizes that God's kingdom is fully established on the earth. Do you know what stops God's kingdom from being in its fullness right now? Our rebellion. That's what our lives are in, is in full rebellion to God. The next thing that he asks is for God to give us our daily bread. Now, do you notice that first word, give? This weekend, I got to go to the Alabama game yesterday. I didn't buy those tickets. Those tickets were given to me. I was sitting there because of someone else's graciousness towards me. It's acknowledging God as our supplier Now, I could give you, I had a really good story uh, about an episode of Cheers because TV used to be good a long time ago. And uh, when Cheers was on, there was a really good little little clip in there from uh, Woody when he had to memorize the serial numbers off some money. But I figured that it would be better to jump back into Proverbs. At the end of the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, there's this, this guy named Agur who writes some really wise sayings. And he's talking to God here in Proverbs 7, 30, verses 7 through 9. He says this, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. It's a fine line, isn't it? There's not a Sunday I don't think that goes by in Jeff Little Sunday School class that as we're talking and, and, and wrestling with God's Word that we don't in the end ultimately say, you know, it's just a fine line how we do this. We're asking God to provide for us. The next thing that he says is forgive us our sins... For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Here, we're acknowledging him as our Savior. Now, understand the implication here that if Jesus would tell you to ask God for forgiveness, that means that God is willing to forgive you. This holy, sovereign God that we are praying to is willing to forgive us. Every Sunday night, the recovery group speaks out 1 John 1.8. If we will confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 
a guy that I listened to talked about forgiveness. And I thought it was a, a really neat way to, to tackle this. He talked about how there are two kinds of forgiveness. There's judicial forgiveness. You hear that word judge in there, right? That word legal, that judge, legal, law. There's that forgiveness that we receive when we accept Christ's work on the cross. And that, that forgiveness that we receive there forgives us of our sins past, sins future. It is finished. So that's not really the forgiveness we're asking for here. We're asking instead for relational forgiveness. Because the fact of the matter is that after I was saved, my sinning didn't stop. In fact, I'm really creative. I think up new ways to sin all the time. And I'm not alone. I can read Paul in Romans 7 where Paul talks about how he knows the good that he's supposed to do. But he can't carry that out. And he eventually cries out in Romans 7.25 and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God. Because it's Jesus who rescues us from that. That sin that we commit now, it, it just hurts the Father. And we can come to Him in that same pattern that we learned when we came to Him and we declared, we confessed that we were sinners. And we can tell Him, God, I know I've sinned again. God, I know it's happened again. God, there's not really anybody else in here that we can blame but me, God. Lord, would you forgive me? God, would you help me? And He is never, never unwilling to forgive. So Jesus tells us to ask for forgiveness. But do you notice that in this request, he puts a condition. He says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I told you about the, the, the football tickets from yesterday. Well, we, we sat in these seats. And I don't know if you've been to an Alabama football game, but to say that you're sitting close to the person next to you is an understatement. Um, I got to know the folks who sat in front of me really well, just like the folks who sat behind me got to know me really well. When we sat down, there was an empty seat between me and the, the guy on the end. And well, I was like really happy because, you know, I'm not a small fella. And as I'm sitting in that chair, I've got a little room that I can lean over here. Well, at about the second quarter, because Alabama was just whooping them, the guy gets up and he leaves. And I'm like, yes, two seats open. And I'm like wanting to stretch out over that way, lean over, put my phone down. And then here comes this guy, and he's got his wallet out. So evidently he's talked to the guy who's just left and got his tickets for some amount of money. And he comes in, and he sits down right next to me. Well, I spent at least a quarter sitting there going, well, I can't believe this guy's sitting here. That's not right. That's not right that he's just sitting. He didn't buy these tickets. He didn't get these tickets. What is he doing? I was just all indignant. And then I thought, well, there's a good sermon illustration. Because here I am. I'm in that seat because of the graciousness of another. And what about us? That we live our lives. We live our lives at the mercy of God. And that we would not be able to that we would not be able to forgive someone else. It's just disingenuous. It's hypocritical. 
Now, I say that, but please don't think that I don't understand that it's not difficult. Can I just tell you there's abuse in my past? And those folks that hurt me, that hurt my family, can I just tell you that I know what it's like to be angry at them? And at first you feel like that anger is justified, that it's righteous anger. I mean, God's Word says that you can be righteously angry, so I'm just going to jump in on that. I'm going to be angry at you. You hurt me. And then you wind up taking that anger and you use it to defend yourself from that person. You keep them at arm's length or you just don't have anything to do with them at all. And then as you continue on and you're using that anger as your shelter, eventually that anger will turn into bitterness. And that bitterness will eventually turn into a hardened heart. And that hardened heart won't stay hard in that one little bitty spot. It will go and just like a cancer, it will infect everything else in your heart. And you find yourself isolated. So in telling us to forgive, God is not saying that it's easy. In fact, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done to look at those people who hurt me, who hurt my family, and realize that I just needed to let it go and forgive them. God doesn't say that it's easy, but he does say that it's the best thing for us. It's God's way of protecting us from that bitterness and keeping our hearts soft in his hands. The next thing he says is kind of confusing because he says, lead us not into temptation. Does God tempt us? There's quite a few of us in here because I'm, I'm talking to a lot of saints today who are like, nope, James says that God does not tempt anybody. In fact, you're right. In uh, James 1.13, uh, James wrote this. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Okay? But we're still praying God lead us not into temptation. So where does temptation come from? Sure would be nice if James had went on and told us. Well, you know what he did. In 1 James, James 1.14, I know I shouldn't be preaching. James 1.14, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when we're looking at this and we're looking at temptation, temptation doesn't come from God. And it seems to me that James just said that a bunch of temptation doesn't come from the devil either. That it comes from this wicked heart that's beating right here. And so we look at God and we say, God, lead us not into temptation. Well, what does this mean? We're asking God for protection. If you look at the word temptation and the original language that it was used in, the word temptation can also be translated trial. Do you know what the difference is? Our response. Temptation is when I let it get the best of me. A trial is when I run to God. And I let God be the one that's in control. I submit to my heavenly Father and let Him be in charge of it. And in the end, that trial makes me more like Jesus. So this is us asking God for protection. This is exactly what we should be praying for our kids, parents. 
This is what should we should be praying for our youth. Youth, this is what you should be praying for us. That God would not lead us into a spot where we, with our own desires, would ruin ourselves. And we can call out to God with that, and God is faithful. Jesus finishes out that little bitty portion of that prayer as a guide for how we should pray. And then he goes on and he gives us two little short stories at the end. And the first one starts off with, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And this friend has gone to their friend's house at midnight and he bangs on the door, he wakes up the friend and he says, Look, I need three loaves of bread. I got some folks coming in from out of town. And the guy's like, Man, I'm asleep. My kids are in bed. I can't get up and do this. And evidently, the person keeps on knocking, keeps on asking. And eventually, Jesus said, even though he's his friend, it's not because he's his friend that he's giving him this. He does it out of his impudence, out of, his, out of just the fact that the, just to get him out of the way, just hush. Just hush, take this, go, do your thing. He says that. Well, I don't think that Jesus is telling us that that's what our prayers are like to God. Because they're not. God loves to hear the prayers of his children. Because even though when we, when we say that prayer is our will being aligned with the will of God, I don't think, now this is just Chad here, I don't think that the point of prayer is as much the answer as it is the asking. As it is the fact that we realize that we can't bring about any kind of result that is worth anything without God. That we go to Him. I've been in that spot where I've, I've thought, God, I've done the same job for the last 18 years, God. Well, I, know that's, I know this is your will. I know this is what I'm supposed to do because I'm walking into school today. But God, something's not right anymore. God, I don't get it. I used to have so much joy in this, God. What in the world is going on? For me, it was in the asking. It was in the realizing that I had taken my job and I had put it in the place of joy being given in my life. I made my job an idol. That's just me. You may not be in that case. But in the asking, in that whispering through the wall, God, I went, I went to work today, something's not right, God down to seeking, which is an aggressive thing where I'm wrestling with God like Jacob did. Jacob wrestled with God in the Old Testament and he wouldn't let God go. He said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. That's what seeking is. And then knocking is storming the gates of heaven and saying, God, you've got to move in this. God, he's sick. He's not getting any better, God. What are you going to do? I don't understand. It's in that asking. It's in the seeking. It's in the knocking that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying. Because isn't it that sometimes prayer's answer is a, is a yes? Sometimes it's a no. But more often than not in my life, prayer is just a hold on. Wait a minute. What do we read this morning? 
Be still. Be still. I've got this. The last story that he gives is he says, Which of you, as a father, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? Which of you, if your son asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? And I love how Jesus uses our hypothetical fatherhood here. It's the fatherhood in our mind. I am dad of the year up here, let me tell you. But in reality, it's not. When I get home in the evenings after I've dealt with work all day, I do not feel like going out in the yard and playing catch. Just leave me alone. Just let me sit down, please. That's me. But in my mind, oh man, I'm top notch. And Jesus goes there. He says, which of you, hypothetically, if your son asked you for something, you would give him something bad? And he says, how much more if you who are evil know how to give good things to your son, how much more will your father in heaven give? And what does he give? Does he say, give you the answer to his prayer, answer to your prayer? No, he says, how much more would God the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit. You see, prayer is this intimate relationship that you have with the triune God where you are praying to God the Father in the name of the Son, the Holy Spirit has a role. I don't know about you, but when I looked at this text this week and the more I studied on it, the more it just, it just hit me. I, 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 don't, I don't measure up, God. I don't pray like I should, God. And God didn't leave us wanting. When Jesus says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, let's look at the Spirit's role in prayer. In Romans 8, Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We, as we pray to God the Father through the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God the Spirit is interceding for us. That's why I say that prayer isn't as much about the answer as it is in the miracle of the asking. It is our will being aligned to the will of the Father and never the other way around. In closing, to land the plane, in 2 Chronicles, there's a prayer that's recorded. When I have trouble knowing what to pray, when, I, when, when, I, when I've had trouble, no, I don't want Siri. I, I, I really, I'm really regretting using electronics right now. Okay, there we go. Um, in 2 Chronicles 20, in 2 Chronicles 20, we've got the story of Jehoshaphat recorded. And I won't read the whole thing, but in this, Jehoshaphat has these armies that are coming after him, and they are going to whoop up on Israel. 
And Jehoshaphat is terrified. So he calls everybody together. And he gets up in front of them and he says this. And you see if you don't hear the Lord's prayer in this. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations and in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, the judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name in this house and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who you would not let who would not let Israel invade you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy behold they reward us by coming in to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit and he ends like this oh god will you not execute judgment on them for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. That's what God wanted in the first place. He wanted their eyes on Him. And He wants the same from you. Do you realize that God is the only being in the universe who when He says that He is the best thing for us, He's not bragging. He's just speaking truth. When God says, I am the way maker. When God says, I am the one who tore the veil from the top to the bottom. I am the one who made a path for you. He's not blowing steam. He's telling the truth. And the best thing that we can do in prayer is come to Him. And He doesn't tell us to come to Him in some groveling fashion. He says, come to me and call me Daddy. Because that's how much I love you. And Jesus says that if we, if we who are evil know how to give good things, how much more will the Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit? How much more will He give us good things? As we're doing, as we're coming to this time of invitation and we're, we're planning, I, I think we're still planning on singing Good, Good Father. Okay, good deal. Just want to make sure I didn't want to talk about a song and it not happen. We're, we're singing Good, Good Father. That God is good. He wants the best for us. In Jeremiah 29, 11, when he said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for good and not for evil, those plans were met and fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. And if you don't know him today, come forward. This invitation is inviting you to come into that relationship. Maybe you don't have a church home and you've been visiting us for a while. Or maybe this is your first time to visit. You just thought the preaching was so good that, hey, you're going to join. That's fine too. 
But we invite you to come get in the fight with us. Come struggle along with us. And let's worship God together. Let us pray. Dear God, our Father, we come before you today, God, and we thank you, Lord, for the words that you have given us through your Son, Jesus, that we can call you Father. And God, that you promise and you've proven over and over and over again how you will never let us down. God, we come to you today and we ask you, Lord, that you would put this into practice in our lives. And God, we thank you that you have made a way for it to happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This altar is open.